Good morning. The scripture reading today you can find in Exodus 3, 1 through 9. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire and out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called out to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Prezerites, the Hivites, and the Jezebites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I also have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Judy. And welcome, everybody. Um, so glad you're here with us. And for those of you joining us online this morning, welcome. Uh, before we start, would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, uh, as the song said, I need you every hour. I need you. And we need you, Father, to teach us by your Holy Spirit that we might come to know you better to the end that we might love you more. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, this morning, we come to one of the best-known stories in all of the Bible. Have you ever wondered why in the Bible God gives us so many stories? Interesting stories, compelling stories, epic stories, unforgettable stories. But the one thing that Bible stories are not is they're not tall tales, tales of exaggeration, fictional uh, tales with fictional people like Paul Bunyan or Pecos Bill. And they're not fairy tales. They're not fables. And they're not bedtime stories that begin once upon a time and end with everybody living happily ever after. The Bible stories are true stories involving real people that occurred in real time. Bible stories don't whitewash the failings and flaws of men. The stories God gives us are intended to teach us vital truths about ourselves. Uncomfortable truths, unflattering truths, hard truths. 
Bible stories are also intended to teach us vital truths about God. The Bible says that we are to love God, but how can you love someone that you cannot know? God gives us stories in the Bible because he wants us to get to know him. And it's true that we can learn something about God from his creation. As the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 1, what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. From creation, we can learn about God's existence, his power, his creative genius, his wisdom, and more. But without the stories in the scriptures, we could only know vaguely about God. The Bible is God's self-revelation, his progressive self-revelation, and his stories give us boundaries. We are not free to read the Bible and then walk away and say, I like to feel that God is all loving and all forgiving. I like to feel that God doesn't disagree with my actions or my choices. We are not free to read the Bible and then make projections onto God. That's what Jethro Tull called making God in the image of man. Well, today we come to uh, a real Bible story. And in the story we're, this morning, we're going to focus our attention on three people. We're going to look at the caller, the callee, or the person being called, and then we're going to spend some time at the end dealing with your call. So we're going to look at the caller, the callee, and your call. The story begins on a typical day for Moses. He's out in the wilderness tending his father-in-law's sheep on the far side of the wilderness at the base of a mountain called Horeb. And as he's tending the flock, Moses sees something unusual. It's a bush that appears to be on fire, but for some reason, the bush is not consumed by the flames. So Moses is drawn to this bush. He wants to get a closer look. But when he gets closer, to his surprise, there's a voice talking to him from within the flames. Among biblical scholars, it is generally thought that Moses is the human author of the book of Genesis. In this chapter, Moses writes, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames of the fire. Some scholars believe the angel of the Lord refers to Christ before he came in the flesh. But what is clear is the voice is not speaking for God or on behalf of God. This is God speaking directly to Moses. Theologians call this a theophany, which means a visible or audible manifestation of God to man. And notice something important. The voice doesn't say, who goes there? The voice calls Moses by name. And from this we learn that long before God Long before Moses knew God, God knew Moses. And even though Moses wasn't looking for God, God was looking for him. And it's not just that Moses, 
God knew Moses, his name, and spoke in a language he understood. God knew precisely where he was geographically. God shows up at the exact place, at the exact time, and in the exact way he needs to show up in order to get Moses' attention. And then he draws Moses to himself in a similar way that a person would draw water from a well up in a bucket, Moses is drawn to God. Theologians would say that Moses is called by God. And one thing that we will learn from this call and the call of God is it's effective. It's always effective. Whenever God calls a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, it's always effective. And so the voice says, says, excuse me, the voice says to Moses, 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 and Moses answers, here I am. And at this point, he says, don't come any closer for the ground that you're standing on is holy ground. Did you know that this is the very first time in the Bible that the word holy appears? The word holy refers to an attribute of God. The scripture says that God is holy, holy, holy. And this is the only time in the Bible that the attribute of God is elevated to the third degree. Because God is holy, even the land, even the ground, even the dirt where his presence is located is holy. And scripture calls God's people to be holy, saying, be ye holy, even as I am holy. So after the Moses is called, we see the formal introduction. God introduces himself saying, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses didn't need Ancestry.com to figure out who he was talking to. Moses knew that he was a lineal descendant of these people. They were not only the biological fathers of his people, they were the spiritual fathers of the faith. Moses has come face to face with the living God of the patriarchs. And now let's summarize what God says to Moses. He says, I have seen, I've seen my people. I've heard, I've heard my people. I am concerned, I'm concerned about my people's welfare and I will rescue. And Moses, I'm gonna send you to do it. From this we learn that God is not a passive, clueless deity who creates the world and then moves on to his next science experiment. He is the God who sees, who hears, a God of mercy and compassion, concerned about the well-being of his people. And most importantly, he is the God with the desire and the ability to save his people. God has big plans for Moses, but before he calls him to go anywhere or do anything, he first calls him into a relationship with himself. And here we see the two important aspects of calling. The primary aspect of the call is always God calling you to himself, into a relationship with himself, drawing you to him. The secondary aspect of a call was for Moses to go somewhere and do something. But there's a backstory. 
the backstory that helps us know God and know how he works at a deeper level. Some of you will remember that in Exodus chapter 2, the Bible records that at the time Moses was born, Pharaoh had issued an edict to kill all the boys born of Hebrew slaves. At the risk of their own lives, his parents defied the edict and kept Moses at the house until he was three months old, when he could no longer be hid. When the boy was too big to hide, his sister made an ark, reeds, a basket of reeds, and he put the child in these baskets, and he placed him in the crocodile-infested waters of the Nile River, where he coincidentally happens to drift to the exact place that Pharaoh's daughter just happened to be bathing. Either because of the color of the cloth he was wrapped in or his circumcision, Pharaoh's daughter recognizes the boy as a Hebrew child. She herself defies the edict and takes pity on the child. And then Moses' sister, who just happens to see all this, goes over to Pharaoh's daughter and offers to help her find a Hebrew woman to nurse the child. Pharaoh's daughter agrees, and coincidentally, the boy's nurse turns out to be the boy's own biological mother. And to top it all off, Pharaoh's daughter agrees to pay the boy's mother for the privilege of nursing her own son. Now, I don't know about you, but I look at that and say, that kid was one lucky Hebrew. But was he really that lucky? Was he really that lucky? The story shows that before God called Moses, God chose Moses. Before he called Moses, he chose Moses. God doesn't show up on a Tuesday afternoon in the middle of nowhere looking for some random shepherd. In Ephesians chapter 1, the apostle Paul says that God's choice of Moses occurred before the foundations of the world. Before Moses was ever born, he was chosen by God on purpose, for a purpose. And the story is also an example of divine providence. God's intricate plan begins before Moses' conception. God orchestrates the details and timing of all the circumstances concerning Moses' birth, his rescue from the Nile, his adoption into Pharaoh's daughter's family, all to accomplish God's plans and purposes for Moses and God's people. But before God could work in and through Moses, he had to work something out of Moses. In Exodus 2, we learn that when Moses was old enough, some estimates three or four months old, or three or four years old, he goes to Pharaoh's great house, where he lives as a grandson of the Pharaoh. Through no merit of his own, this boy comes into a level of prosperity, of position, of power, and privilege that few of us can understand. As a member of the royal family, he was raised in the finest home. He ate the finest foods. He was taught by the world's finest teachers. He wore the finest clothes, and no doubt he had servants waiting on him hand and foot. Moses lacked nothing except humility. The boy that was spoiled, rotten, became the man who was full of himself. He knew he was special, and he longed for a chance to prove it. So when he saw an Egyptian fighting with a Hebrew, he killed the Egyptian 
and buried his body in the sand. He probably expected people would thank him for that. But later, when he sees two Hebrews fighting, one of them says to him, are you going to kill me too? And then the question. It's the question above every other question. The question was, who made you ruler and judge over us? The book of Exodus was written to answer that single question. Who made Moses ruler and judge over the Hebrew people? The answer, God did. God did. So when Pharaoh learns what Moses has done in killing this guard, he comes after him. Moses runs for his life, and for the next 40 years, he lives in obscurity. Once the prince of Egypt... Moses was now a nobody, the forgotten man. He was going to die in the desert wilderness and no one would remember his name. For 40 years, for his first 40 years, Moses had everything. And for the next 40 years, he lost everything that he once believed had made him a valuable and worthwhile person. We might say that Moses' life was not turning out like he planned. But with the benefit of hindsight, we can see that things were going exactly according to God's plan. You see, our lives are all lived looking forward, but they are understood looking backwards. What Moses learned in Egypt was valuable, but it made him arrogant, willful, and prideful. In the wilderness, God equips him for his future calling by molding his character. And Moses learns to live in a desert environment. And from this, we learn that God doesn't call the equipped, but he always equips the called. Many of us know what it means to be humbled by our circumstances. As Sinatra said, riding high in April, shot down in May. But no one knew what it felt like to be humbled by his circumstances better than Moses. The old Moses was proud and arrogant. The new Moses was humble. As the Bible says, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. God always intended to use Moses in a great way. But it took 40 long years to wring the pride and arrogance out of him. Before God could use Moses greatly, he had to humble him greatly. So to this point, we've been primarily focused on two people. We've looked at the caller, who is God, and we've looked at the callee or the person called, who is Moses. But what about, what about your call? Nowadays, the term calling is often misunderstood. In his book, The Call, Os Guinness says that when it comes to the matter of calling, there are two common myths. One of them he calls the Protestant distortion. The other he calls the Catholic distortion. In the Catholic distortion, answering the call is jargon. It's a term used for becoming a priest, a monk, or a nun. Everyone else just has work. Work is considered secular or non-religious, and by implications, it is not significant in the sight of God. 
So Martin Luther blows up the Catholic distortion, saying the works of monks and priests, however holy and arduous they be, do not differ one whit in the sight of God from the works of the rustic laborer in the field or the woman going about her household tasks. But all works are measured before God by faith and faith alone. Indeed, the menial housework of a manservant or a maidservant is often more acceptable to God than all the fastings and other works of monks and priests because the monk or priest lacks faith. So that's the, that's the Catholic distortion. The other distortion is the Protestant distortion. Guinness writes, the original demand that each Christian should have a calling was boiled down to the demand that each citizen should have a job. Henry Ford expressed the Protestant distortion this way, work is the salvation of the human race, morally, physically, and socially. President Calvin Coolidge said, the man who builds a factory builds a temple. The man who works there worships there. In the Protestant distortion, the God who calls, faith in the God who calls is eliminated, it's removed. But if there is no caller, there is no callings, there's only work. If there is no caller, there are no callings, there's only work. When it comes to our callings, many of us need to redefine our boss. In Colossians 3, Paul says, work heartily as unto the Lord. Are you a bag boy at Publix? Do your work as unto the Lord. Are you the president of a Fortune 500 company? Do your work as unto the Lord. Do you set up chairs or greet on Sunday mornings? Do your work heartily as unto the Lord. Do you see what a biblical understanding of calling does? It takes all legitimate work and says it's significant in the eyes of God. No matter what you do, you and your work matter greatly to God. William Perkins said this, the actions of a shepherd keeping sheep is as good a work before God as the action of a judge in giving sentence or a magistrate in ruling or a minister in preaching. Do I get an amen on that one? When I came to a better understanding of calling, I changed the settings on my cell phone. My cell phone office number, used, work number used to say office. But when I came to a better understanding, I changed the number to say calling. I changed it to say calling. Today our culture encourages us, encourages all of us to extract our value and worth and our identities from what we do. But when what you do is who you are, who are you? Where is your value when you can do nothing? Whether you're out of work or unable to work, no matter how old you are, you are never not called. God may call you to a particular vocation for a lifetime or a season of life, but you are never not called. And like Moses, your first and primary calling is always into a personal relationship with God. And like Moses, you're called by somebody to somebody. 
You're called on purpose for a purpose. And like Moses, before you were called, you were chosen. I remember when I was 12 or 13 years old, I went through a confirmation class and I remember being scared because I didn't want to go, go to Africa. Uh, for some reason, I had it in my mind that if, if you know, I went through with this whole thing, that God was going to send me to Africa. Um, but, but obviously, he has not done that. Um, and one thing I've learned since then is that when God calls you, he has the ability to change what you want to do. He has the ability to change what you want. Take Colin and Zuri Jennings, missionaries supported by this very church. Right now, they're in Africa, the exact place they wanted to go. They are engaged in challenging work, but it's the most exciting work they could imagine. Some days are discouraging, and they are not immune from disappointments or setbacks. Yet on balance, their work is incredibly rewarding and fulfilling. God put in their desires, God put in their hearts a desire to serve him in Africa, and then he gave them the desires of their heart. They are not celebrities who perform before an audience of thousands. They're just like you and me, people who serve God before an audience of one. Most of us are not going to be called to the ends of the earth to serve God. As the Apostle Paul said, let everyone remain in the position he was in at the time he was called. We aren't always called to go anywhere, but we're always called to bloom where we are planted. Bloom where you are planted. Unlike Moses, most of us will never be called to great things, but we are all called to be faithful to our caller and to our callings. Some of you are familiar with the name Dwight Moody. He was one of the most famous evangelists in American history. It was estimated that during his lifetime, he spoke to over 100 million people at a time when technology is not a fraction of what it is today. But most of you have probably never heard of Edward Kimball. Edward Kimball was a Sunday school teacher, and he was concerned about Moody, thought he was on the wrong track. So he went to where Moody worked in a shoe store in Detroit, Michigan, and he said, son, I'm concerned about you. And there in the basement of a Detroit school uh, shoe store, Edward Kimball led Dwight Moody to the Lord. It may not seem like a great thing, but as Hudson Taylor said, a little thing is a little thing, but faithfulness in a little thing is a great thing. You know, to this point, I've been mainly talking about missionaries and folks that are in vocational ministry, but let me be clear, most of us are just called to be ordained math teachers <clears throat> or ordained stay-at-home moms or ordained butchers or bakers or candlestick makers, and rarely, some are even called to be ordained lawyers. <laughs> when we think of our calling, 
most of our minds rush to what is it that God wants me to do. But Guinness says, before God calls you to go or do, he's always calling you to be. Before you're ever called to go or do, he's always calling you to be. And listen carefully to what Guinness says is the problem. The problem with Western Christians is not that they aren't where they should be, it's that they aren't what they should be where they are. What kind of people is God calling us to be? Well, the Bible contains various lists of qualities to be found in a Christian, Psalm 15 among them, but no list is exhaustive. And in the end, it's not my job to tell you what kind of person God is calling you to be. Your answer is in the book. And as my teachers used to say, look it up. But remember this, as we, as we interact with other Christians, and I was telling Mike, I really love what he said a few weeks ago, where he says to Molly, you know, I'm, I'm surprised that we're not more holy already. And, and brother, I can so relate to that. And the truth of, the, of it is, is that character change and heart change is hard work, and it takes a long time. And we are all a work in progress. And as the song says, please be patient. God's not through with me yet. So, do we have any fans of the Blues Brothers movie in the house? All right. I see Reed Zolke's hands go up. Fans of that movie know that Jake and Elwood told the audience what their mission was, what their purpose was, what the theme of the film was, they said over and over again, we're on a mission from God. We're on a mission from God. What could be more exciting than to be on a mission from God? Did you know that you may be the only burning bush that anyone ever sees? You may be the only one to bring light into someone else's darkness to bring hope into someone's despair, to bring courage where there is fear, wisdom where there is folly, insight where there is confusion, trust and truth where there is error, faith where there is doubt, and love where there is hate or indifference, to bring life where death now reigns. Now, how could you do all that and more for somebody? You tell them a story. In the Bible, the word for gospel means good news or good story. We often think that the gospel story begins with the cross and the resurrection of Jesus from the grave, but in truth, it began long before because before Easter, there was Passover. In Exodus 12, records the first Passover, the night the Passover lamb was slain and its blood was put over the door frames of each house. And for thousands of years after that night, the Jews celebrated the night when God had passed over the sins of his people. And at the end of the Passover supper, it was common, even to this day, for the oldest male to close the night by saying, remember the lamb. 
remember the lamb. And over time, God spoke to his people through prophets, telling them that a Messiah would come. The Hebrew word for Messiah is the chosen one. In Greek, it means the Christ. As the prophets foretold, when the Messiah would come, he would rescue not only the Jewish people, the Hebrews, but he would rescue us, the Gentiles, people from every tongue and tribe and nation. So Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. Everyone expected that when the Messiah came, he would be loved by God. He would be blessed by God. He would have the favor of God. So how could Jesus be the Messiah if he was crucified on the cross, cursed by God, and abandoned? Two weeks ago, Christians around the world celebrated Easter. Easter commemorates the resurrection of Christ from the grave. The resurrection proves Jesus' claim to be the Messiah. It proves that God did love him and that God was pleased with him. And if God was pleased with Jesus while he was on the cross, that can only mean one thing, that he was cursed for somebody else's sins and not his own. Just as the prophet Isaiah had foretold, the Messiah would come as a substitute for his people and would be pierced for our transgressions. He would be crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace with God was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Every one has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the sins of us all. Theologian John Stott said it this way, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. The essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Moses gave us the first Passover, but in Christ one greater than Moses is here. Christ is our final Passover. Scripture tells us that Jesus is called the great shepherd of our souls. And Jesus himself says, my sheep know me, I know my sheep, and I call them by name. He goes on and says, I'm the good shepherd because I lay down my life for my sheep. If you are a Christian here this morning, these are healing and comforting words. For you, the word of application is, Remember the Lamb, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And for any here who, or who are visiting with us online this morning who are still on the fence trying to decide whether to place your faith in Christ, remember that the same God that called Moses says to you today, I see you, I hear you, I'm concerned for you, and I sent Jesus to rescue you. For any who are still on the fence, let me close with these words by Os Guinness. Do you long to escape the smallness of a life with no purpose higher than your own? To rise above the mediocrity, tedium, and quiet desperation of so many around you? To know a purpose no odds can daunt, no failure can dismay? Has your spirit heard Jesus calling? Follow me. If you have answer the call. 
As the scripture says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So let us pray. Father, we thank you that we are called. We thank you that you drew us to yourself. Your word says no one can come to you unless the Father enables him. So thank you, Father, for drawing us to yourself. We thank you, Lord, for your mercy and for your kindness. And we pray that as we grow in our understanding of what it means to be called, we will understand that we are all called to be faithful to our caller and to our callings, and that we are called to be. Lord, help us to do that. Help us to be the people that you've called us to be. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.